This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos. This is Brock. It is great to be here, back here, I should say, at Books and Nachos. You can hear me every episode during the credits, of course, but longtime listeners will know that I've only done one book review for Books and Nachos, Indiana Jones and the Army of the Dead, and you can find that review, if you're interested, at booksandnachos.com. But with all the Star Wars book reviews I do for Venganza Media's Star Wars Action News, which you can find at swactionnews.com, I really don't have much time to do much other pleasure reading, let alone more reading for book reviews. So when this opportunity presented itself as a companion to our James Bond now-playing retrospective series, I decided it was time to return to Books and Nachos. A little background to start, as you probably know from listening to the now-playing shows, I consider myself a pretty big Bond fan, but in actuality, I'm a pretty big Bond movie fan. A new Bond movie for me is still an event, a drop-everything-and-get-there opening weekend important thing to do. As I've mentioned on Now Playing, my history with James Bond is really connected to my mother. She and I would watch a lot of Bond together and make a point of seeing the new releases together opening weekends. And besides watching the movies, as a kid, I'd read anything I can get my hands on about the Bond movies, learning about the -the behind-the-scenes stuff. I like the trivia of being able to put which invention, girl, henchman, stunt sequence was in which particular movie. I actually was interested in reading about how close the movies are or aren't to the novels that share the same name and which parts of which movie are actually in a different novel. And over the years, I have read countless internet pages, fanzines, bond-making of books, and the like, but just never this original material. Which is odd for me, considering for other movie franchises I really enjoy, I read practically all the fiction. I have read countless Star Wars novels and most of the Indiana Jones books written over the past 30 years, but never these original Bond books. And it isn't like these books weren't easily available to me either. My mother was into the spy craze of the 60s. She read all the Bond novels starting in the 50s, and every time I would visit my grandmother's house, I'd go upstairs to the bookcase in the hallway and look at my mother's collection of old Ian Fleming James Bond paperbacks. It was sort of like a pilgrimage for me. It was something I really enjoyed doing. I would look at the back covers, reorder them on the shelf, just look at the spines all lined up with the titles in red and black. And my grandmother lived only 10 minutes away, so that would give you a good idea of how often Often this actually happened. But never did I pick up the books to read them. So I guess all it really took was a good reason to finally read these James Bond novels. And thanks to Venganza Media, I have it. As you no doubt heard Stuart already discuss the first half of James Bond novels, I will be reading the latter half of the Ian Fleming James Bond books, including the short story collections. I will be going in order of the book release, and today I'm going to start with part one of three podcasts covering the short story collection for your eyes only. Today's stories will be The Hildebrand Rarity and Quantum of Solace. The Hildebrand Rarity was originally published in Playboy magazine in 1960, right before the publication of For Your Eyes Only. While the title The Hildebrand Rarity has yet to be used in a James Bond movie, elements of the story were used in the screenplay for License to Kill, the 1989 Timothy Dalton Bond movie. The book opens with Bond in between assignments, hunting a giant-sized manta ray in the Seychelles Islands. 
and we learn that these giant rays used to be hunted for their long barbed tails, because the tails were used as whips that the native men would whip their wives with. That practice had been banned on the island, and the whips illegal to sell. Because of Bond's abilities under the water, Bond is asked by his friend Barbie to join an expedition to find a rare fish called the Hildebrand Rarity. This fish has only been seen once before by a man called Hildebrand, and it is distinctive for its color and sharp quills. The man putting up the money for this expedition is millionaire Milton Crest on his vessel, the Wave Crest. On this yacht, besides the small crew, is Mrs. Crest number 5, Elizabeth, who has taken an instant liking to Bond and he to her. Bond sees Crest has a manta ray whip in the bedroom and figures out Elizabeth has been on the receiving end of the beatings. Now, if any of this sounds familiar, as I said, elements of this story were used in the Bond movie License to Kill. Milton Crest is a secondary character there. If you've seen the movie, he's memorably killed in the pressure pod on board the wave crest. The use of a manta ray tail as a whip is a trait actually given to that film's main villain, Sanchez. The Hildebrandt rarity takes the most time with Milton Crest and shows us this despicable human being and how he treats people. This character is a great villain, but perhaps not in the scale I am used to from the Bond movies. Crest is the star of this story and by far the most interesting character. His contempt for the world, and especially how he controls it with his money, is remarkable. The more you read about the efforts he puts into his public persona and how that contrasts with who the man really is, as well as purposely insulting everyone around him, it makes you loathe him, but at the same time be fascinated by him. Elizabeth Crest and Bond connect rather instantly, and beyond just because they're both of British origin. This is a woman who puts up with a lot for her lifestyle, and I get the sense she knows she has made a Faustian deal. She'd be a woman that Bond would bed in a Bond movie for sure, but here Bond hears her story and doesn't go to bed with her. You get that Bond feels real sympathy for her. He can sense her sadness and eventually her fear. Bond listens and watches a lot in this story. He is not a spy on duty here after all. And they do not know his actual profession. But we see Bond's efforts to purposely not try to get involved with Crest and his wife's issues and how it affects him. He wants to step in and knows he can't and shouldn't. So we don't get what I think of as a typical James Bond adventure or even a spy story or even the character of James Bond that I know from the movies. Again, Bond really isn't the star here and he isn't a man of action. But the characterization here gives him presence being my first reading of Fleming's writing of the character. And in a story like this, where we don't have Bond be a spy or even a star, I was taken with how Fleming wrote this character. The inner conflicts, Bond as a person, as a man. For in many Bond movies, we don't delve into Bond's humanity. And here, we do. Certainly, my backstory with the film incarnation was in the back of my mind, and I believe that helped empower Bond here in the story for me to a point, knowing what this man is capable of, but reading here how he forces himself to not get personal and just do the job he was hired for to catch that fish was a change. The climax of the book, where Milton Crest is murdered, is not a surprise and is both satisfying and a bit frustrating. As you are reading the story, you know that the murder is coming. It would be the only conclusion for this story. Now, being killed by the Hildebrand rarity in his mouth, its quills piercing his face and suffocating him, is completely satisfying and gives this particular story a nice pat round closure. And I give credit here to Fleming for not revealing who did the deed. I appreciate we never flat out find out who kills Crest. That feels right. But having Bond go over the motives for the two likeliest suspects, spelling it all out for us, Fleming could have given the audience a little more credit there. We know why someone would want to kill him. We just read the whole story. 
Having Bond clean up the mess, disposing of the body, and cleaning up the evidence as best he can that it was a murder, we finally get to see the efficiency of 007 in action at the end of the story. He can't be implicated in a murder investigation, so that's what his motive was in doing it, and watching him coldly make it look like Cress fell overboard to cover everyone's tracks was a good read. For my first exposure to Ian Fleming's writing and his James Bond, I have to say that while I certainly didn't get what I expected to as far as a Bond adventure, I enjoyed the characters in the Hildebrand rarity a great deal, including Bond. Fleming's writing hooked me in and kept me interested, and his way of describing the settings and the looks of the characters allowed me to visualize everything quite vividly in my mind. The story progresses at a leisurely pace, and as the story unfolds, Fleming's writing took me along with Bond as we discovered Crest's world, and the next thing you know, you're at the end of the story. I found Hildebrand Rarity a good read. Quantum of Solace is our second story today, as it was originally published in 1959. Now, the paperback I have says it was originally published in Cosmopolitan magazine, but Wikipedia says Modern Woman's magazine. I don't know which is right, which is wrong, if it's actually a different name for the same magazine. Let's just move on. Uh, Quantum of Solace, like the Hildebrand Rarity, isn't a James Bond 007 spy adventure. But this one goes farther away from it being a spy story than even the Hildebrand rarity did. I'll sum up the entire story for you as short as I can, because I feel it's the most efficient way to give you context so I can talk about my impressions of the story. The story opens with Bond attending a dinner party in Nassau at the governor's house, as he again has some downtime after a mission, which we hear a tiny bit of detail about. Bond is completely bored by the whole affair, especially by the other guests. As the other guests leave and the night winds down, the governor and Bond get to talking, and Bond makes a comment about how if he was ever going to marry, he thinks he'd like to marry a stewardess. He uses the term air hostess. That's actually the first line of the story. This inspires the governor to tell Bond a story of a man he used to know who did just that. A man named Masters, a UK employee stationed in the islands, who wasn't all that wealthy. He married a stewardess named Rhoda and went out of his way to give her a life he thought she deserved and way beyond his means. Despite his efforts, Rhoda was unsatisfied and started to have quite the open affair with a wealthy young Bermudan man, breaking Master's heart and causing him to essentially have a nervous breakdown. So after going away on assignment, Masters returns to Bermuda and confronts his wife, who has actually stopped having the affair by the time Masters has returned. Masters tells Rhoda they're going to split up and has a long plan on how they're going to do just that, setting up strict rules in the house regarding no interaction or affection in the home and about how much money she is allocated. They will only interact in public to put on appearances. After about a year, he returns to England and leaves her in Bermuda with enormous debt and no money to leave the island, completely destitute. This malicious act of a broken man towards his wife is because, as the governor explains, the quantum of solace of their relationship has been destroyed. Rhoda eventually remarries, and we learn after the story is done that Rhoda and her new husband were the other guests at the party that night. With this story, and learning that it is connected to the other guests he had met that night, Bond now sees his life in a new light as a boring existence compared to those others' experiences. Now, never in a million years had I thought I would enjoy reading a story about James Bond, 007, licensed to kill, sitting down with an old man hearing a story about the deterioration of basic humanity. (laughs) While I came into reading this story wanting to get my bond on, I was surprised how interested I had become in this story about a stewardess and her husband. And I wanted to know how these two people's story resolved. 
And the credit for that has to go to Fleming's writing. Once again, overall, I was taken how easy the prose went down. Though there is one part I didn't care for that came across pretty racist, and Bond and the governor used some outdated terminology there. That didn't sit right, and I'm glad it wasn't dwelled upon. But it was uncomfortable to read those sentences. Not until the end did I start hankering for it to be a James Bond type of story. And I realize that makes little sense, because I am reading this story because I want to read a James Bond short story, but I got into it. But yes, we have to call this out. This isn't a Bond story, technically speaking. In my research into the background of For Your Eyes Only, I read on the internet Quantum of Solace was Fleming's attempt at writing in the style of M. Somerset Maugham, an American author he admired. While I have heard of that name before, I have never read any of Maugham's work, and after reading Quantum of Solace, I still do not have a need to, but this explains a lot. At least with the Hildebrand rarity, we have a conflicted Bond who wants to help that woman but cannot butt into their business, yet, given the chance, he participates in helping cover up the murder. Here in Quantum of Solace, we have Bond sitting and listening the entire time, and it really didn't have to be him. So by having this character literally sit in for this story, Fleming gets Bond fans interested in reading his writing experiment they probably wouldn't have been interested in reading otherwise. The coda to the governor telling the story, Bond being told that the guests that he was so bored with earlier, the woman was the same woman from the story he had just heard, put Bond in a reflective mood, and again we see the more human side of Bond. As I know, there is a book coming that Bond gets married in. Perhaps the story is setting up the groundwork for that. Suddenly, he sees his life as boring and futile as he leaves for the night. He's going to Paris the next day to start a mission, but that seems trivial to him now, having heard this brutal real-life backstory of a seemingly boring person he met just hours before. And while I get what Fleming is going for with that, Bond questioning what is real excitement in life and what really matters in life, and his reflecting on the truth he just heard, I just don't think that plays as well as the author may have thought it did. So I found the story that was being told fascinating, but the Bond connection to it uh, pretty lackluster. Beyond being taken in by the events of the story, I would be remiss if I didn't admit my curiosity over what the title means had something to do with my maintained interest in this un-Bond-like Bond story. This title puzzled me for the past five years. What does it mean? If you heard our original Quantum of Solace Now Playing review back when the movie was released, which is still available in the archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com, Alicia and I discuss how the title isn't explained, and we really don't understand why the movie is called that. Not that it really matters. I mean, Bond movies have been known to use the title of books or stories and little else before. But at least you can connect why they use that particular title. Or like in the last three Brosnans, they humorously make a point of dropping the title in a line of dialogue. The term Quantum of Solace is not uttered in that movie. So I was curious what it meant when I read this story. So here is the story is explained as the governor comes to the part where Masters returns from his assignment abroad and is emotionally shut off from his wife as he puts his plan to destroy Rhoda into motion. I'm going to read you the passage directly from the book. And then Philip Masters came home. The governor paused and looked reflectively over at Bond. He said, You're not married, and I think it is the same with all relationships between a man and a woman. They can survive anything, so long as some kind of basic humanity exists between the two people. When all kindness has gone, when one person obviously and sincerely doesn't care if the other is alive or dead, then it is just no good. That particular insult to the ego, worse, to the instinct of self-preservation, can never be forgiven. I've noticed this in hundreds of marriages. I've seen flagrant infidelities patched up. I've seen crimes and even murder forgiven by the other party, let alone bankruptcy and every other form of social crime. 
incurable disease, blindness, disaster, all these can be overcome, but never the death of common humanity in one of the partners. I've thought about this, and I've invented a rather high-sounding title for this basic factor in human relations. I have called it the law of the quantum of solace. Bond said, that's a splendid name for it. It's certainly impressive enough, and of course, I see what you mean. I would say that you're absolutely right. Quantum of solace, the amount of comfort. Yes, I suppose you could say that love and friendship is based in the end on that. Human beings are very insecure. When the other person not only makes you feel insecure, but actually seems to want to destroy you, it's obviously the end. The quantum of solace stands at zero. You've got to get away to save yourself. Did masters do that? Now knowing what that means in the context of this story, you could apply that to the movie Quantum of Solace regarding Bond and his feelings toward Vesper Lynn through most of the movie. But they really just used the title because it's a cool-sounding title, according to Daniel Craig. So perhaps we'll look into that more when we review the movie again during our James Bond retrospective series. For a lot of you looking for a good spy story or an action story, you are not going to be happy with Quantum of Solace. So personally, I am thankful this is not my first foray into Bond on the page. Thank goodness for the Hildebrandt rarity in this situation. I find it fitting that we are pairing these two Bond stories together for this review. As in both stories, we get Bond sitting and listening to someone else talk, whether it is Crest opining about his opinions of the world, race, money, or women, or just sitting with a nightcap, listening to an account of a complete destruction of compassion in and towards another human being. So despite limited and complete lack of bond in these Bond stories, I actually enjoyed reading Quantum of Solace and the Hildebrand Rarity. I enjoyed reading Hildebrand Rarity more, and I wish I'd read a full Bond novel before I started here with these two stories, but what can you do? Thank you for joining me today for this episode of Books and Nachos. Please go to booksandnachos.com to find our other reviews in this Ian Fleming James Bond series, a companion series to our James Bond retrospective series going on now at Now Playing, and those shows can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another Bond review, another two stories from the Fewer Eyes Only collection, Risico and From a View to a Kill. Thank you again for listening. This is Brock, and Books and Nachos will return. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.